So on August 31st, 1983, Korean Airlines Flight 007 departed New York City. It was headed towards Seoul, South Korea. They stopped in Anchorage to refuel, and then they resumed their journey toward Seoul. But when they left Anchorage, something happened with the navigation system, presumably a pilot error. A later investigation concluded the pilot likely put the autopilot on the wrong setting, a setting that would not account for wind conditions, among some other atmospheric conditions. And as a result of the error, KAL-007 was blown off course, just ever so slightly to the north of its designated path. The drift was slow and it was gradual. After one hour of flying, the plane was only about 12 miles off course. But five hours later, the wind had blown KAL-007 into Russian airspace. Now remember, this is 1983. It's the height of the Cold War. The Soviets saw... The flight on their radar, they scrambled fighter jets, assuming this was an American spy plane. It had come from American territory. And a short time later, one of those Soviet fighter jets shot down the commercial airline over Russian airspace. All 269 people on board were killed. What started as an ever-so-slight drift from the plotted course had devastating consequences in the end. Failing to account for the winds of the day, KAL-007 had been blown off course and ultimately destroyed. And it's a tragic reminder of the danger of getting blown off course. It's a picture of what can happen to us personally and corporately as a church. We can quickly, easily, unassumingly find ourselves in places that we don't want to be. We shouldn't be with devastating consequences. If we don't stay alert and pay great attention to following the course that has been marked out for us. That's what I want to talk about this morning. You remember last year we were working our way through the New Testament letters. We finished with 1 John right before Thanksgiving. We spent the Advent season talking about the Great Commission. We looked at Daniel the past three weeks. We're going to go back to the New Testament letters this morning. And we're going to do an overview of 2nd and 3rd John. But before we jump into 2nd and 3rd John, I want to take a couple of minutes just to discuss the social and historical setting of these letters. And if you were here when we talked about 1st John, hopefully this will sound familiar to you because all three letters share a social and historical setting. In fact, there's a debate among scholars right now as to which of the letters was written first, second, and third. Was was 1st John actually written first or was it a different one? Regardless of where scholars land on that, they pretty much all agree that they were written around the same approximate time to address the same general crisis in the church. And this was the crisis as best we know. Following Jesus' death and resurrection, John the Apostle had traveled around the region of modern-day Turkey planting churches, and he became kind of the key shepherd of those churches in the region. But with time, the churches were confronted with a divisive problem, which prompted John then to write these letters. Here's the problem that emerged. Some people of influence within the churches had gotten off track theologically. They'd begun to oppose John's apostolic teaching, and they were threatening the purity of the gospel and the unity of those churches. And this was at the heart of their theological error. It was a denial in the humanity of Jesus. They claimed that Jesus seemed to be human, but that he was not, in fact, human. See, their worldview was influenced by some Greek beliefs. The Greeks believed that the realm of the gods and the realm of the humans did not and could not overlap. Therefore, if Jesus was truly God, he could not have been human. 
That was their belief. And their belief had two clear and devastating conclusions, both for faith and practice. Here was one of them. It led them to deny or at the very least diminish the significance of Jesus' atoning work on the cross to pay for our sin. The second is that they deemed that life in the physical body was insignificant to the life of spiritual faith. So they, they believed that the life of faith was this endeavor of the soul and life lived in the body was just, this, just the hedonistic endeavor of the person. Those two realms didn't overlap. So in their thinking, you could be very spiritual and very immoral, and that was no contradiction to them. It's the epitome of a two-story life that we talk about here at River. So John, he hears of the influence these opponents have gained in the churches of the division that has already happened, and he writes these letters to oppose the group's teachings and to encourage the faithful believers in those churches to stay the course. So it shouldn't be a surprise that we find some common themes, some common threads that run through all three of these letters. Two of the big themes we see are truth and love. So here's what I want to accomplish this morning. I want to consider first the biblical nature of truth and love, so we find it in John's letters. And then second, I want to identify a couple of strategies for staying the course of truth and love in a windy world. So let's start by considering the biblical nature, truth and love. And specifically, I want us to see a couple of things. One, I want us to see that truth and love are central to John's understanding of what it means to be biblically faithful. And two, that they are cohesive to one another. So let's talk first about their centrality to faithfulness to Christ. The centrality of truth and love to biblical faithfulness in John's understanding can be observed by the frequency with which he uses those two terms. So 2 John contains 13 verses. 3 John contains 15 verses. In those 28 verses combined, we find truth used 12 times. We find love used 6 times. If you want to go back and look at 1 John, you find truth and love mentioned 40 plus times just within 1 John. So the sheer volume with which John uses those two terms points to their importance. But not only did John signal the importance of truth and love by way of frequency, but also primacy. We find truth and love at the very beginning of both of these letters, embedded within the very greeting. And John puts them there on purpose to signify their importance and what he's trying to communicate to the churches. Communication 101 tells us that what people talk about first and what they talk about most is what's most important to them. And what John talks about first and most often is truth and love. So just listen to the greetings to each of these letters. 2 John 1 through 3. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth. And not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. That's how he opens 2 John. Here's 3 John. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth. As indeed you are walking in the truth, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. 
So what John talks about first and most often in these two letters is truth and love. They're absolutely central to his understanding of what it means to be faithful to Christ. And what you may have already picked up on in seeing how John uses these terms is he doesn't just view them as being central but also cohesive. That is to say, in John's mind, truth and love seem to be inseparably linked So that one cannot fully love apart from a correct understanding of the truth, nor can one fully grasp the truth without then being compelled to demonstrate a godly form of love. So John seems to understand truth and love as being like these perfectly overlapping concentric circles. So that if you step outside of the truth circle, you have ceased truly loving someone. And if you step out of the love circle, you have stopped demonstrating and believing and living the truth. Now, here's what I think is fascinating. I think that if you took that circle out on the street and you asked people, do you think that truth and love can overlap like this, that many non-Christians would agree with you. My truth is love. Love me according to to my truth. So they wouldn't necessarily agree with that circle. Where we're going to have differences is on the definitions. What is truth? What does it mean to love? So let's look at truth and love as John defines them in his letters. Our world is going to define them according to preferences, largely. This culture that we live in, truth and love are largely preferential. But John uses these fixed, objective, sacred terms and ideas and foundations to define both truth and love. So let's look at them. First way that we see John define truth. He defines it as being the commands of God the Father. 2 John 4 through 6. John writes, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth just as we were commanded by the Father And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. And this is the commandment, just as you've heard it from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. So see that John uses the term truth in parallel with the word command. He talks about walking in the truth, And then he talks about walking according to his commandments. And those are close parallels for John, if not synonymous. And I want you to see, too, that when he uses the word, the pronoun his, in verse 6, his commandments, he's referring back to the Father in verse 4. We're talking about the commands of the Father. So in a minute, John's going to bring in the teachings of Christ. He's going to talk about those as being truth as well. But here he's referring to the commands of the Father. So needless to say, this should inform the seriousness by which we approach and interpret the Old Testament scriptures. Okay, can I just say the Old Testament is of utmost importance for the church today. You know, Jesus in Matthew 22, when he gave the, gave the great commandment, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You know, he's quoting the Old Testament, right? Deuteronomy 6.5, Leviticus 19.18. Now, we obviously have to take care how we interpret the Old Testament commandments. We have to interpret them through the lens of Christ, through the new covenant of his blood. But this is the point, that the Old Testament, rightly interpreted, must come to bear on our lives, our faith, and our doctrine. It is the truth, and it is still God's word for us today. 
So John defines the truth as being the commands of the Father as well as the teachings of Christ, verses 9 through 11. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. Whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. So if walking in the truth and walking according to his commandments are parallels in verse 4 and 6, then we might add a third parallel here, and it's abiding in the teachings of Christ. Those who do not abide in Christ's teaching and in Christ himself do not have God. They do not walk according to his commandments. They do not walk in the truth. Their false teaching and their faulty living is equated with, John says, wicked works. For Christ himself is the way and the truth and the life. So, to put it, saint, put it plainly, truth is encapsulated in the commands of God the Father and the teachings of Jesus Christ as they were received Recorded in the original autographs by the inspired biblical authors, what we now acknowledge as the canon of Scripture, the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments, this is truth. So, having established a biblical definition of truth, what about love? How does God, through John's pen, define love? Well, it's connected to and contingent upon our previously established definition of truth. They're inseparably connected. 2 John 1-3, through we've already read it, but I want you to look at it again. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. 3 John 1. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. So John says, I love you in truth. We love you in truth. And not only that, but we love you because of the truth. The truth informs my loving. If I had no belief in truth, I would have no good logical reason to love. And if my belief in truth was strictly personal or preferential, I would have no good logical reason to love anyone but myself. But John has truth. He believes in truth, the commands of the Father, the teachings of Christ. And so he has a good logical moral reason, even a moral obligation to love. We see this love as he understands it exemplified in verse 6. He says, and this is love that we walk according to his commandments. And that's a reiteration of what he says in 1 John 5, 2 and 3. He says, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. So here's how I would boil this all down and explain it to my six-year-old. I would say, we love people by doing what God says. And we love God by doing what God says. Do you see the connection? Do you see the inseparable link, the concentric overlap of concepts? Truth defines love. Love expresses truth. So we've talked about the biblical nature of 
truth, and love as we find them in John's letters. Now let's identify a couple of strategies for staying the course of truth and love in a windy world. Remember, John was writing to refute opponents who had strayed from the truth and therefore contradicted love and were trying to sway the church toward their persuasion. These false teachers were trying to take the church off course, to blow them off course. And it's for that reason that John warned the church, 2 John verse 7, saying, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. So what I want you to see is that this problem that existed for the church in first century Turkey is not so dissimilar from our contemporary context. The churches to whom John wrote had people who, over time, for whatever reason, were blown off course. They discovered some new, more exciting, more palatable, less archaic information, and they try to graph it onto their belief system, and in the process, they cut away some essential stuff. So that when all is said and done, they had outright rejected Christianity. They had become anti-Christ, against Christ. And throughout this process, the church that was trying to be faithful was looking over the fence and they were tempted to ask the question, are we the ones on the wrong side of truth? Are we the ones that are getting blown off course? Maybe that sounds familiar. The church today, as it was in John's day, exists in a windy world. There is real pressure to be blown off track by false beliefs and and adopt faulty ways of living. Now, some of this pressure comes from the outside. It comes from obvious and unashamedly secular sources, the influence of popular culture, new theories in science and academia, new innovations in technology and media. It's a real pressure. Is put on the church. But some of it comes from the inside, from movements that can emerge slowly within the church and then take an increasingly secular turn over time, shifting doctrines on the authority of Scripture, the nature of Christ's work, gender and sexuality, marriage, politics. So here's the question for us. How do we remain faithful to God in a windy world that threatens our faithfulness to Christ? John gives us two strategies, to walk in the truth and to watch yourself. Walk in the truth and watch yourself. John's consistent metaphor for being faithful to God is walking in the truth. 2 John 4, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. Verse 6, And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you've heard it from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. 3 John 3 and 4. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, and indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Now I want you to see that in every instance here, Walking is a present, active verb. Walking in the truth is not passive, 
but active. It's a day-to-day way of life. It's a way of life that involves consistently and continually taking in Scripture, listening, reading, studying, memorizing, meditating, and then putting it into practice through application. That's the process by which we come to see God's plotted course for our lives and make sure that we're staying on track. It's how we walk in the truth. And we stay the course knowing that it's not going to be easy in a windy world. Jesus said the gate is narrow. The way is hard that leads to life. Those who find it are few. We have to endure in walking in the truth in the face of difficulty, in the face of pressure. And we know that if the walking ever stops being a present active activity and instead becomes a past or passive activity we are vulnerable to the winds of the world like kal 7 we may drift into dangerous airspace unaware now my aim this morning is not for you to live in fear perfect love drives out fear he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world my aim is not for you to live in fear My hope is that we will increasingly learn to live with discernment. 19th century English pastor Charles Spurgeon famously said this, Discernment is not knowing the difference between right and wrong. It's knowing the difference between right and almost right. And the best way to grow in discernment is to know the truth. Carl Truman, who wrote a great book called called The Strange New World, He shows how the winds of our modern Western world came to be. says this, Every age has had its darkness and its dangers. We're nothing special, okay? Every age has had its darkness and its dangers. The task of the Christians is not to whine about the moment in which he or she lives, but to understand its problems and respond appropriately to them. That's discernment. And the best way to grow in discernment is to know the truth. So here's our first application this morning. Are you presently, actively walking in the truth? Are you hearing, reading, studying, memorizing, meditating on, and applying the scriptures? Have you learned just some basic tools for interpreting scripture correctly? Have you read a little bit of systematic theology to build a a Christian worldview, to put the pieces together? Or do you need to get back on track this morning? Do you need to start presently, actively walking? So strategy one for faithfulness in the face of worldly pressure is to walk in the truth. Strategy two is to watch yourself. So immediately after John warns the church about the reality of deceivers and antichrists, he issues the only two commands we find in 2 John. We find two pure commands. They're in verse 8 and verse 10. Let let me read them for you. Verse 8 says... Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Verse 10, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. Those are the two commands we find in 2 John. We find one pure command in 3 John, verse 11. There John has just described the actions of a wicked, arrogant divisive church leader named Diotrephes, and then he says this, 3 John 11, Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. 
Now, I want you to understand what John is not saying here, especially that those two verses, those two commands at the end of 2 John. John is not saying that you should avoid having non-Christians in your home. He is not saying that you should treat non-Christians unkindly or disrespectfully. Clearly, as we read and consider what the rest of the Scriptures say, we know that all people must be treated with dignity and respect because they're made in the image of God. We know that Jesus made a clear point to dine with sinners around the table. I hope you will invite non-Christians into your home and around your table, and you will demonstrate the hospitality of Christ. And I hope that you will do that even if people mock you and ridicule. That is the teaching of Scripture. Here's what John is saying in this context. Remember, his aim here is to protect a young and vulnerable church from wicked, arrogant, and divisive leaders who have bad theology. And rather than trying to address every nuanced argument they might make, John just says to them, for now, don't even talk to them. You look on to verse 12, he says, I hope to come to you soon and to talk more about all of these things face to face, but for now, just don't talk to him. So here's what I think is at the heart of all three of these commands. Who do you give influence in your life? Who is it that truly has your ear? Who is it that you've given hospitality in your mind and in your heart? Who is it that you watch with admiration? John wants us to make sure that it's the right people. People who are resolutely walking in truth and love in a pressurized world. So here's the second application. Just honestly ask yourself that question. Who do you give influence in your life? Is it a celebrity? Is it a politician, a professional athlete, an Instagram influencer, a big-name pastor that you've never met, some YouTube prophet that you found in the dark recesses of the Internet who just reinforces everything you want to hear? Is it an anchor for CNN or Fox News? Or is it first and foremost the living God who has clearly revealed himself through the Scriptures? And then secondly, is it a small group of fellow believers within the context of the local church who are committed to walking in truth and love as Scripture defines it and to discerning the winds of the time and staying the course? Let's pray together.